Amen. Thank you, Pat. We're starting a two-week series on worship. It is called Inside Out Worship. Today, we are going to be talking about the inside nature of worship, the internal things that go on for us to be true worshipers that the Father is seeking. Next week, we're going to talk about the outside, what that looks like, the many ways that worship looks. And we're going to pray here in a minute, and I need your prayers to be joined with mine this morning. I'm not just asking you to do this because it's what we do every Sunday. Please pray in agreement with me as I pray because this topic, worship, is it involves our whole lives. It affects every part of us. There's not one part of our lives that is not going to be touched by this issue of worship. So I really want us to hear it. I want you to hear it. I want me to hear it, and we need the Lord's help to do that. So will you pray with me, please? Father God, we are thankful to you, Lord. We've asked it once this morning, and we ask it again, Father. Please open our ears to hear. Change us, Father, by your word. You could have done anything you wanted in any way that you wanted, Lord, but you choose to do the things you do by words. You speak words, and things come into existence. You gave us your word to know you. So, Lord, we ask this morning that you would give me your words to speak, that hearts would be changed by you. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. All right, so we're still in the introduction portion. Getting to the main points in a little bit, but I've got two weeks to spread it out, so we can go slow. When I started this, I thought that maybe a good place to begin would be like, if our goal is to be true worshipers, maybe a sub-goal of that should be we should know what worship is. Like, if we're going to be worshipers, what's worship, right? But I abandoned that goal because in preparation, I read book excerpts and articles and blog posts and commentaries, and I listened to sermons by respected teachers on this subject of worship. And what I found is that trying to come up with a nice, concise definition of what worship is, is very difficult. There's not a lot of consensus on what exactly it is. Here's just an example, a couple of examples of things I read or listened to. Definitions of worship. Worship is honor. I have my phone up here as a prop and it just chirped. So if that happens again, I'm sorry. Uh, worship is honoring God. Worship is showing or displaying His worth. It's giving back to God what is rightly His. Worship is reflecting back to God His infinite value. It's giving our attention and affections to something or someone. Worship is bowing down, lifting hands, praying, serving, giving, reciting, preaching, singing, cleansing, ordaining, sacrificing. The list goes on and on and on and on. So can you see how it's difficult to kind of take all of that and whittle it down into, like this is this nice little package of what worship is. So let's, let's not try. Prob if we wanted to come up with a definition, probably the best one I heard in all the places that I searched, I found right outside in the lobby next to the now not working water fountains. And it was given to me by Ron Eshelman. We were talking about this a couple weeks ago and he said, in trying to define worship. He said, worship is everything. It's our whole life. And I agree with Ron. There's not one part of our lives that are not called to worship. It involves everything we do. God wants 
our complete devotion to Him. That is why when asked what the greatest commandment was, Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. He wants all of you. All of you. How could that not affect our whole lives? God wants us to find our greatest happiness and satisfaction in Him and nothing else. Not because He's some egomaniacal bully in the sky who's forcing us to do things. It's because what the Apostle John wrote in 1 John chapter 1 is true. The Apostle John wrote this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness. So there's no darkness in his decisions. There's no darkness in his ways, even though his ways are far higher than our ways and there are many times that we don't understand them. But there's no darkness there. There is no darkness in his intentions for us. So when he says he wants all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind, it is for his glory and our greatest good. So trying to define worship is a goal that we're just going to set aside. What I really want for us this week and next week is to start a process because it's not just going to be like, okay, hey, we did this. And now the worship series is over and we're good with worship. My prayer for you is to start a process of growing in worship. I want us to grow in worship and it is a lifelong effort. My prayer for Saving Grace Church and anybody watching this at any time ever is that a desire would be built in you to be intentional to be what God is seeking, and that is a true worshiper. The passage that we read about the Samaritan woman said that this is what the Father is seeking, true worshipers who worship Him in spirit and truth. That is my prayer for, for us as we move on. So how are we going to get there? Well, we're going to, this is inside out worship, so we're going to talk about the inside things this week. And I've, I've learned that it's good for those of you who are note takers to give you an idea of where we're going before we start. So here are the five points that we are going to try to get to today. Number one is we cultivate what we cherish. Two is worship must begin with the heart, in the heart. Three is worship is a matter of how and who. Number four is emotion matters. And number five is we must worship in spirit and truth. If you are frantically scribbling those down because it's a lot of words, as we go through each point, all five of those are going to be up on the wall. So you can, you can relax a little bit. Okay, those are our five points for today. Let's start with the first one. We cultivate what we cherish. I am extremely thankful for Bob Santos. He is a gift to this church, and I was so glad that he came last week and preached because it was laying a wonderful foundation for what we're doing the next two weeks. In fact, this first point, we, we cultivate what we cherish, 
I pretty much completely stole from Bob's message. It's like a, it's like a, uh, uh, a collection of all of his ideas into this first point. If you did not see Bob's message from last week, you should probably stop listening to me right now and go watch it, okay? If, if you don't want to do that, watch it some other time. It's definitely worth your time. What Bob was saying is that fruitfulness, bearing fruit in our lives, is essential to worship. It's an essential consideration when we consider worship in our lives. Fruit bearing is how we glorify the things that we glorify, not just how we glorify God because we bear fruit to glorify other things. And the Scriptures make it very, very clear. Bob pointed to John chapter 15, verse 8, which says, By this my Father is glorified. By what my Father is glorified? That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That you bear fruit that proves you are disciples. And this is how you glorify the Father. So that makes it super, super, if not easy to live out, at least clear to understand. If we are interested in glorifying the Father, if that is our goal, then the way we do that is we bear fruit, spiritual fruit. That should be a high priority. I love the visual picture of fruit because it grows on a plant, right? And a plant is, has to be cultivated in the ground, maybe in a garden or in a farm, depending on how you want to picture it, but it needs cultivation. And cultivation means that we have to work at something, we have to sow a seed, we have to care for it, we have to water it, we have to attend to it, and eventually if we cultivate, if we sow into this project, it will grow a plant that will bear fruit. But we need to take a step back backwards. Like we started with fruit, and we step backwards to to get there, we have to cultivate. But if we step back from that, why do we cultivate? Why would we spend the time working and sowing and planting and weeding and all that stuff? Why would we do it? We do it in all kinds of things in our lives because we cherish those things. The things that we cherish are the things that we will spend the time cultivating. And the things we spend time cultivating will be the things in which we bear fruit. Now, this is the point in the message where I think, it's starting to get like it, it can kind of be pinchy or hurt a little bit when we think about these things. It definitely felt that way to me last week when Bob preached this because I thought, wait a second. What kind of, I have all kinds of fruit in my life that really has nothing to do with glorifying the Lord. And if I've got this fruit in my life that is not about glorifying the Lord, it's only there because I'm spending time investing in it, cultivating it, and that's only happening because I cherish it. So what in the world am I cherishing that's bearing this kind of fruit that has nothing to do with the Lord? It requires us to ask ourselves some hard questions. And I hope, I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. I don't want to lose track of the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus as we ask ourselves these questions. But still the questions need to be asked. What is the fruit in your life and why is it there? We cherish what we worship, and I speak for myself, but I'm sure I'm not the only one. We probably need to do some weeding in our gardens. There's probably some things there that ought not to be. 
I want to address two things. It's almost like one thing because they're very closely related. Before we move on from this point, I want to talk about two things. And the, the first one, I'm talking to everybody because this, this impacts all of us, but I really wanna, I, I want those of you who are sort of in that maybe 16 to 28 or so window, young people. If you're 29, I'm sorry, I didn't just call you old. I didn't mean that. But if you're like in that young person generation, listen up. Do you remember the parable of the sower where the sower is casting out the seed and it's falling on different ground and and it's bearing different kinds of fruit? In that parable, the Lord was talking about sowing God's Word. But wouldn't you agree with me that the world that we live in, the culture that we're surrounded by all the time, is a kind of sower that wants to sow seeds that bear fruit in our lives constantly? Would you agree with me with that? Culture is a sower. It's casting seeds all over the place. And they have the tendency to take root in our lives and grow, and sometimes unnoticed. In fact, I would make the argument that culture wants us to not notice. And the reason I'm talking to that young set is that we carry these computers around in our pockets. We call them phones. But they have access to everything. Mine just chirped again. I've got to turn this thing off. <laughs> it said amen. Thank you, Albert. It's probably my mom texting me. Uh, um, it has, it's got, it's got culture coming at us constantly through all kind of messages, whether it's through media that we see in movies and TVs or uh, internet-based things. I, I'm, I'm talking like an old guy because I'm 45, so I don't understand the lingo. But there's, it's just like plowing into us constantly through these machines. And there's never been a generation that has been affected by that more than this young generation. You guys have never known anything different. And it's available all the time. And because it's available all the time, it becomes normalized. So culture has tried to normalize lying and death and abortion and divorce and racism and illicit sex and anger and revenge. Man, our culture celebrates revenge and many, many other things that I probably can't get away with mentioning in church, right? Culture wants to normalize these things. But the Apostle Paul calls us to do this. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, he says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. As we're being pummeled with seeds that are sown from our culture, what do we need to do? We need to take every thought captive. And sometimes that starts with what I encouraged you to do a little bit ago. Examine yourself. What other thoughts have already gotten past that and are, are starting to grow? 1 Timothy 6, 7 says, For we brought nothing into the world. This is the second thing I wanted to say before we move on. We brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. The seeds that culture sows and the fruit that it produces, if we allow it, is fruit that is all going to be burned up. None of it lasts. 
We can pursue all kinds of things that culture attracts us to, and none of it lasts. The only thing that lasts forever, the only fruit that we bear is the spiritual fruit that the Lord intends us to grow and walk in. Paul also says this in his letter to Colossians, to the Colossians. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, anybody here been raised with Christ? Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. He makes it so clear. He makes it so clear. If you are in Christ and you want to bear spiritual fruit that is eternal, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. So point one, we cultivate what we cherish. Point two, worship must begin in the heart. Let's go back to our account of the Samaritan woman. So now imagine this, okay, whether you've seen that episode of The Chosen or not. Imagine this. There's a well, big hole in the ground. Put the buckets down in there. You gather the water. If you've ever picked up a bucket of water, it's heavy, right? So she's struggling there. And Jesus comes and begins to talk with her. Now, what is happening? Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior from the Old Testament. And he walks up to this woman who is the outcast of outcasts. And he has, look, this is John chapter 4. And and if you read from the beginning, Jesus hasn't revealed himself to anyone as being the Messiah yet. This is going to be the first person that he says, that Messiah you're talking about, that's me. This is the first time he says that. And look who he's saying it to. An outcast among outcasts. First of all, I apologize if this offends, but she was a woman. And in that time, that automatically put you in the category of somewhat of an outcast. The word of a woman in this culture was not considered to be trustworthy enough to testify to the truth. So a woman gives an account of something, doesn't matter. A man comes along and gives the exact same account, now it's a trustworthy statement. Unfortunate but true. Secondly, she was a Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans. And I'm not suggesting that it's a good idea to hate anyone, but if we look at the circumstances, Jews had some compelling reasons to think about Samaritans in a poor light, all right? This was, this was a group of people who in recent history had refused to participate in a rebellion as the Jews were seeking their freedom from the Greeks in the Maccabean Revolution, right? So they, they refused to be part of that. Even more importantly, Samaritans claimed to worship the same God that Jews worshipped, but their, their version of the Old Testament was totally different. So they were worshiping the same God in name, but in reality it was something completely different. It was not the same God. They rejected the Jewish Old Testament. That was why the woman made this statement, by the way, when she says to Jesus about the mountains, your, your peop- my, our fathers say we should worship on this mountain, but you people say you should worship uh, in Jerusalem. That was what that was all about, this difference in, in uh, which version of the Old Testament they had. And thirdly, she was a harlot. 
a prostitute, basically. She was now with the sixth man in her life. So, not well regarded in her community. She was an outcast among outcasts, and this is the person Jesus comes to to reveal Himself as the Messiah. That's amazing. Now, we don't get this woman's story beyond this account. We don't know what happens to her after this. We do know that Jesus is in the business of changing people's lives. We see the beginning of her changed life. We can imagine that it changed drastically after that. We know that Jesus changes our affections. He gives us by His Holy Spirit the power to do things we are supposed to do and to keep us from doing the things that we're not supposed to do. But He doesn't start there. Okay? Christianity is not a religion of self-improvement. It's not about just being a better person. It's not about joining the better, better person club. If that was the case, Jesus never would have approached this woman, all right? He wasn't after what she was on the outside or the things that she had done. Those things didn't concern Him. What He was after was her heart. He was after her heart. He's after your heart. Think about the conversation they had. He asks for a drink. She says, what right do you have to ask me for a drink? You're a Jew. He starts talking about living water, giving her living water. She says, buddy, you don't even have a bucket. You know what I mean? Like, what are you going to give me? You don't even have a bucket to draw water. Jesus very uncomfortably and awkwardly starts talking about her relationships with other men. She changes the subject. She's like, oh, you know about that? Let's talk about theology. All right? And she changes the subject to, oh, our fathers say this, you're your religion says this. She tries to change the subject, and Jesus very skillfully takes that topic and brings it right around to the crux of the matter. He says, he says to her, listen, it's not going to matter where you worship. It doesn't matter what mountain you worship on. What's going to matter is this. He says in verse 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. That word spirit is what I'm talking about when I say it has to start in the heart. Spirit means a lot of things. We're going to cover some of those things today. What it can't possibly mean less than is this. It has to mean at least this, that if you are going to be a person who worships in spirit and truth, you must be born again. Your heart has to be a new creation not just an improved person. You must be born again. Think about this. Worship at this moment when Jesus is having this conversation was not a new thing. It had been around for millennia. But it was still true what Isaiah said in chapter 29, verse 13, and it was just as true when Jesus quoted Isaiah in Matthew, I think, 15. Yeah, 15, verse 8 and 9. He said, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. It's possible to honor something with your lips, but your heart to be far from it. So if your heart is going to be near to it, not far away, something has to happen. You need to be a new creation. And Jesus is saying to this woman, the time is now here 
when I'm drawing people to me, I'm changing people's hearts, I'm giving you living water that's going to be a well that just springs up to eternal life. And this living water is going to be like that vision that Ezekiel saw. That's the te- what was a temple with water running out of it, and everywhere it went, it gave life to dead places. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm drawing you and changing your heart to give you this living water. Well, how does that happen? Because it has to be supernatural. It's not something that we can do. It happens through the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel and having the Lord do what He always does, and that is using words, His truth, to change people's hearts. So, what is the gospel? Well, here it is. It starts with bad news. The gospel's good news, but to get it, you got to start with bad news. The bad news is we were all born sinners, lost, without a hope, completely separated from the Lord in a you ain't never going to get there from here kind of way. It's impossible to bridge that gap. And not only that, but a day is coming when humanity collectively, but you individually are going to have to answer for every single thing you ever thought, said, or did. Every single thing. And that's true because God is good and God is just. And He must punish sin. It's just the way He is. He's just. But here's the good news. Every sin that has ever been committed by you or any other human, me included, will be punished. It's just either going to be punished by, or it's going to be suffered by the individual, or it's going to be suffered by Jesus Christ, which He already accomplished on His cross. He took every single sin that you ever committed and ever will, and He paid for it. He lived a perfect life. He died an innocent death, and He rose again and is seated right now alive, and He's coming back. And when we trust in Him entirely, when we repent from the sins that we've committed, and we turn to Jesus and trust in Him, that's the only way we have hope. And that's what changes people's lives. That's what Responding to that is what makes that new creation and is the starting place for worship. It has to start in the heart. It's available to everyone. If you are not saved, you can respond right now to that message and be saved. Think about it. If Jesus can, if Jesus can draw the Samaritan woman, if Jesus can draw Saul, who persecuted and killed Christians and, and changed his life into the, to becoming the Apostle Paul, if the Lord can save me, He can save anybody. So, don't let today pass. Respond to the Lord. So, Worship must begin in the heart. Point three, if we don't get to all these points today, it's okay, I got next week. Point three, worship is about how and who. When we just talked about spirit, that was, that was the beginning of talking about the how. We're going to get back to that in a little bit. Um, but now we got we to gotta deal with the who. Who is the who of worship? Who are we supposed to worship? Well, let's all just shout out the automatic, everybody knows it, Sunday school answer. When you're not paying attention and the teacher asks you a question, what do you say? 
Jesus, right? Like, that's, that's, we know that that's true. But that's not the way Jesus says it in this account. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Truth is the who of worship because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So if we're going to be true worshipers that start with our spirit, our heart, then we need to worship with a true perception of who God has revealed Himself to be. He's interested in our hearts. He's interested in our minds having a true perception of who He is. Now, that's really all I need to say about that point, but I want to go down just a tiny little short path here because... There are plenty of untrue perceptions out there of who Jesus is. And we want to worship, we want to cherish so that we can cultivate and bear fruit in the right fields, right? And there are plenty of spiritual fields out there that would desire that we, that we sow in the wrong fields, in the wrong perception of the Lord. We know this to be true because this is why Paul said in his letter to the Galatians that you need to watch out for those who are teaching that you must work your way into salvation, that you have to do this and this and this and this. Oh, wait, you failed at this. Too bad. That is not true. You can't possibly earn your salvation. It's a good thing that that, that's not true because we'd never make it. Here's another one. In 2 Timothy, Paul again said that there's coming a time and I bet you'd all agree that it's, we're here, the time is now, when people won't want to listen to the truth, but they'll only want to have their ears tickled with the things that they like to listen to, the things that give them permission, and I say them, but it's us too, all right, that give us permission to pursue the things that we, that we like. Oh, that sounds pleasant. I like that message. That's there. We've got to be careful to take every thought captive. Here's one more. Paul said, we just covered this a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about Acts. He was on his way to Jerusalem, but it was so important that he went out of his way and met with the Ephesian elders. And he said to them, I'm telling you, the moment I leave, there are going to be people who come in and try to teach you something different. Don't listen to them. So false teaching is a thing, all right? And I'm convinced that there are false teachers who do it intentionally to draw you away, and there are those who don't do it intentionally to just get it wrong. That's why uh, Joe and David and Kay and Mark and I have many times said, listen, we love you and we want to teach this word accurately, but if we don't get it, if we mess it up, please come tell us because we sometimes miss things, all right? So false teaching is a thing. Let me give you two really quick examples. There, is a, there are two types of teaching that have infiltrated a lot of, lot of teaching all over the world, a lot in the United States of America. One is prosperity. Okay, I, I hesitate to call it the prosperity gospel, although it's referred to that a lot, as that a lot. Prosperity and humanism. Prosperity would be um, the idea that the Lord wants you to be if you become a Christian, you're going to be healthy and wealthy as long as you have enough faith to achieve those things. If you don't achieve those things, you must not have enough faith. 
And the other one is humanism, which is kind of this idea of human beings being uh, the most important thing that there is, even elevated over God, and using Christianity as a way, or whatever, as a way to improve the human, the individual human. That's probably an oversimplification, but you get the idea. Neither of these things is the truth, even when they're mixed in with the truth. It doesn't make them true. Both of them elevate the gifts, the good gifts that the Lord gives over the giver Himself. Does God give us good gifts? Absolutely yes. Is He our provision? Absolutely yes. Is He our healing? Absolutely yes. But our aim is to find our complete satisfaction in Jesus Christ and to follow His will for our lives. And sometimes, instead of health and wealth, that's going to look like danger and poverty as we follow His call on our lives. But the idea is that those things, those worldly things that are passing away won't matter to us because the things that we cherish, the thing that we cherish, the person that we cherish is Jesus Himself. Everything else is passing away. All right, let's move on to the next topic, and then I'll wrap this up pretty quickly. We uh, already mentioned that we cultivate what we cherish. Worship must begin in the heart. Worship is about how and who. I'm going to put the last two points together. Emotion matters, and we must worship in spirit and truth, and I think that must is in all capital letters. Okay, um, these, these two are closely related. Emotion matters. I grew up learning in churches that I should not be led by emotion, and that's true. That's not to say that I'm unemotional. My children will tell you that just about every time we get to the end of a good book, it takes me a while to get through the last couple pages. They're like, come on, Dad, you know. Um, but the idea is not to be led by emotion because emotion changes. It goes all over the place. Truth is the same. So if we are led by truth, that is a more reliable thing to be led by, right? And truth, it, by definition, there can only be one truth, and it cannot change. So we talked about um, truth being uh, the, the who of worship. Spirit is the how of worship. And we said that if we're going to talk about spirit, we have to start with a new creation heart. But here's the other thing. Here's the other way we can look at spirit. It's not only a supernatural heart change, it's a change of our affections and our emotions and the desires of our hearts. We sang that this morning. I delight myself in you. We sang in that song, Overwhelmed. That's what the Lord wants to get at, our affections and our emotions toward Him. Well, how does that have to do with point five? We don't want to worship in vain. We don't want to be worshipers who worship in vain. And Jesus said to the woman at the Samaritan well, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. If we're going to understand how these two things point together, we need to define the must in that sentence. We must worship Him in spirit and truth. What does that mean? Does it mean like a you have to whether you want to or not? I, I used to mess this all up all the time when I thought about the biblical word sacrifice. I thought sacrifice meant I have something, it's mine, the Lord's asking me to give it. 
okay, well, the Lord wants me to do it, so I'll give this thing that's mine, and I'll do it because the Lord's making me do it. But that's like totally the wrong way of looking at sacrifice because fundamentally, everything that I think is mine, it's not mine. I don't have anything. Everything is the Lord's. So, so the idea of sacrifice is 0% giving what is mine to the Lord. It's 100% stewarding what the Lord has given me that He actually still retains possession of. It's His anyway. I'm just supposed to steward it. So when you look at it that way, all of a sudden sacrifice or giving or whatever doesn't seem like such a big deal because it's not mine anyway. Let me, let me paint a picture of, of this for you. I don't know if she's in this room, but let's, let's imagine that I came in this morning and Kathy Carney gave me a check for $1,000 and it was made out to Molly Van Horn. And she said, hey, I want you to give this check to Molly Van Horn. Okay. So I go f- find Molly and I go to hand her the check and I'm like, I don't, I don't want to give it to her. That's ridiculous because it's Molly's name on the check. The check isn't mine. The $1,000 isn't mine. It has, it's not mine at all. So my giving it to Molly should be no problem whatsoever. Let's say I give it to Molly and Molly says, thank you, this really meets a need. This came in perfect timing. And I say, uh, don't mention it, Kathy made me do it. <laughs> I didn't want to do it, but Kathy told me I had to. So here's your check. Can you imagine that that's not a, a, a huge blessing to Molly Van Horn, <laughs> my, my reaction in that moment? Let me, let me give you one more example that I stole from someone else. Okay, this is a guy named Edward John Carnell. Maybe some of you know this example. It might make some people blush in here, but it's okay. It's funny. Let's say that a husband approaches his wife in the evening as they are ready to retire, and he says to her, must I give you a kiss goodnight? Do I have to? Is there a wife in this room who would be happy about that question? Do I have to give you a kiss goodnight? And in his example, Carnell says that the wife should respond, well, yeah, you must, but not that kind of must. I don't want the must that is born out of duty. I don't want to kiss goodnight if, that's just, if you're just doing it because you're the husband and I'm the wife and that's, that's what we're supposed to do and that's your job. I want the kind of kiss goodnight that means that's born out of I have this overflowing affection for you and I love you so much that I can't stop myself. I have to do it. I must do it. That's the must we're talking about when he says we must worship in spirit and truth. He's, he's given us a new creation heart and he's changing our affections so that we, we do it because we want to do it, not because we're forced to do it. Does that make sense? Okay, so let's close this up really, really quickly because I'm sure I'm over time. This week we were talking about the inside issues of of worship. We'll do a little bit of a reminder of that next week. I have some homework for you to do this week. Next week, we're going to talk about the outside part of worship. Did anyone in here notice that in all of this time I've been talking about worship, we haven't mentioned one word about singing or music? I guess I did refer to a song lyric. But I didn't say, I didn't say one time, that worship is what we do from 10 to 1025 here at Saving Grace Church. 
Now, is what we do from 10 to 10.25 an aspect of worship? Absolutely yes. But I intentionally steered away from that because when we hear the word worship, we automatically have this association with music because that's just like what we've always used that word to mean. But worship's our whole lives. And by the way, that, I've been teaching music for 23 years. It was hard to preach a sermon and not mention music, <laughs> a sermon on worship and not mention music. Fair warning, next week we're going to talk about music and singing a lot. Okay, I'm going to make up for it. Um, but here's, here's what I want you to take away from today. As one of your pastors, as your friend, as a father and a husband, and as an individual who needs to do some self-examination as well, my hope for you is that you will grow to be what this Scripture passage in John 4 says that the Father is seeking. He's seeking true worshipers. That seems like a good goal for us. If that's what the Father is seeking, isn't that a good aim to be true worshipers? And so here's my homework for you. It's, it's a little hard. It's not time-consuming, but it's hard on the heart sometimes a little bit when you start asking yourselves these questions. Your homework is to ask yourself three questions. What do I cherish? Is my view of Jesus accurate? Or is it informed by culture or things of this world that I cherish? And third one is, am I seeking the greater glory or the lesser? That's a reference to what Bob Santos taught last week. There is only one greater glory, and it's, it's God. That's the only lasting eternal thing. Or are we seeking the lesser glory? Now, those can be hard questions as you explore those things in your own life. But if you remember maybe half an hour ago, I said, I don't want us to lose hope in the Lord as we examine our lives and look at these hard things. If we are seeking to be true worshipers, we have to ask these hard questions. But if that seems daunting, let me just leave you with this one last scripture, which hopefully calms any fears. And that is from Philippians 1 verse 6, and it says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Our job, from our perspective, is to ask these questions and to do our diligence in becoming true worshipers. But we have this promise in the Scriptures that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And that should be very, very comforting as we think about these things. Amen? Let us worship him in spirit and in truth, not in vain. In spirit and truth. Let's pray. Lord, we ask, Father, that you would continue. We've asked it so many times. I'll keep asking that you would open our hearts and our ears and our eyes this morning, Lord. Father, if there is anyone hearing this message in this room or online or anytime in the future online, Father, I ask that you would do the miracle 
of changing people's hearts, making them new creations, Lord, creating worshipers out of those who were far away, Lord, just like you approached the woman at that well, seeking her heart. Father, I ask that you would seek people's hearts this morning, Lord, and change them and call them to salvation through Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us who already know you, Father, I ask that you would help us to do the courageous thing in examining our own lives, in looking to see what needs to be weeded out. And Father, give us uh, the power to seek the things above, Lord, that are eternal and unchanging. Father, we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus, through whom all things are possible. Amen. Amen. Thank you. At this time, um, if you are in need of prayer,